0: We are on the brink of a mental health crisis, and this is why I am so appreciative of the folks over at BetterHelp. They provide the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. Sign up today, go to BetterHelp.com, and use the promo code Solving healthcare and get 10% off. Sign up fees. 99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quarcast cool, Nation, we are back with an amazing episode—a live cast that we did with Dr. Lucy McBride. She's podcast host. She's an author. She's a blogger. She has the amazing Substack newsletter on Are We Okay? And as you'll hear about, she's a real motivator for us to move over to Substack, where we have Solving Healthcare Media, all healthcare solutions, all on one site, our podcast, our blog, video content. All our creative content that puts it out there to say, hey, you guys are looking at ways to get healthier. You want content about women's health, men's health, nutrition, fitness, how we improve our healthcare system as a whole, all on one site, qualcast.subsec.com. So please check it out. But you guys are going to enjoy this episode. We did a live cast where we addressed perimenopausal, menopausal health, hormone replacement therapy. What's myths? What what should we be concerned about? You're going to see us tackle more of this content over the next little while because this is an area where I think we have not served the public well, as you'll hear about. A lot of women with, unfortunately, going through tons of symptoms, leaving the workplace, having mental health issues. And for many women, hormone replacement would be the answer. And so we want to address some of the questions, some of the concerns. Is it safe? Is it not safe? This is what this live cast is all about. So without further ado, let's do this. Dr. Lucy McBride. All right, folks. Welcome to our live cast with Dr. Lucy McBride, the one and only future author, podcaster, super advocate for our kids holistic medicine enthusiast. And we're going to be talking about hormone replacement therapy. We'll talk about perimenopause women's health. Cause I'll I'll say this, I was introduced to how big of an issue this was a few months ago. And I don't know, I've been feeling pretty possessed to have to address this issue full on. And I couldn't think of a better person to bring on than Dr. Lucy McBride. And before starting, yes, I need to thank you, Lucy, for two things. One, being that inspiration to advocate for our children—that was extremely um, important to me, important to our community—and and I really commend you for being so courageous and being uh, being a, giving me the energy to be courageous as well. And then, second, uh,
1: likewise, you—you you put your neck out there, my friend.
0: Yeah, we all did a little bit. We, and, we did.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And but second, getting us over to Substack, by the way. So listen, uh, the Substack, we moved all our content over our podcasts, our videos, our blogs, our vlogs. It is so universally it's very beautiful. Fun.
1: It's very fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's community building. It's engaging. And it's it's just fun. Yeah. And it's fun.
0: It's, 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 it's,
1: it's, a, it's a creative little wonderland over there. It's very it, fun.
0: Absolutely. And really, we're, we're using it as a tool to provide you guys with healthcare solutions, women's health, men's health, all these things. So for you guys to be a part of it and also get a copy of this podcast, the video and the audio, please just type in NL into the chat box if you're on Facebook and you'll get a copy of this directed right in your inbox. So thank you very much, everybody, for coming and joining Lucy. This has been a long time coming when you say so.
1: Oh yeah. We so it's funny you've been thinking about hormones you said for the last couple of months. Yep. I mean it makes sense. You're an ICU doctor. You're not thinking about hormone replacement therapy when people are in your office. They are intubated, sedated, they're at the, you know, at a very very critical moment of their life. I'm on the other side of that coin, if you will, where I'm trying to help people be healthy mentally and physically, which includes assessing their hormonal situation. So, you know, this is, this, is a, this is a universal phenomenon in women that we have female reproductive hormones and that around 45 to 52 or so, there's a transition where the hormones made by the ovaries no longer make estrogen, sorry, the ovaries no longer make estrogen, progesterone, and small amounts of testosterone over time. And so it's something that I think, you know, I think unfortunately in the current medical landscape in the U.S., and I know the same is true in Canada to some extent, to a large extent, you know, people are walking around sort of disenfranchised from medical information that's nuanced and then they're often disenfranchised from their own bodies right like women are not like even in my generation i'm not that old i don't think but certainly in my parents generation like my mom wasn't taught about her own anatomy and and same with even my generation um we are are not we don't have access to to just basic knowledge about our own bodies and so i think it's beyond time for women of all ages to have access to facts truth nuanced information about how to be healthy mentally and physically and in many cases not all cases in many cases that includes thinking about hormones during the transition from menstruation every single month to menopause which is defined as the absence of a menstrual period for 12 months
0: mm.
1: the transition is the transition from having regular periods from age, you know, whatever, nine to nine and 12 years old to the mid forties, this is on average, by the way, and menopause, a perimenopause is the transition from, from being in regular menstrual cycle mode. To, I'm not speaking very clearly. I think it's the tech that's just like, <laughs> <with me. laughs> I,
0: I got you. Like, I'm following, I'm following, like,
1: like, like, like Monthly menopausal, monthly menstrual mode. I mean, that sounds like a like a like a band or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, to to post menopause, which is when you haven't had a period, so that stretch of time is the delta. That's the transition during which women often experience symptoms of hormonal ups and downs, like hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, more frequent urinary tract infections memory issues, cognitive concerns, insomnia, heart palpitations. Because estrogen, progesterone, the hormones made by our ovaries, are systemic, they are coursing through our veins, the absence of them affects every organ system in some way, not always badly, but in a nuanced way, such that a discussion with every woman involves a discussion of their particular set of symptoms, and then, of course, the discussion on whether to have someone on hormone replacement therapy, you know basically giving you back what your body is no longer making is about balancing the harms of the hormone replacement therapy with the harms of not being on hormone replacement therapy and that's the conversation that i think so many women women are deprived of
0: yeah and and the reason i think so many women are deprived of it, uh, deprived of it was from my understanding the there was data around 2002 the women's health initiative that implied that you know you women that took hormone replacement therapy were at higher risk of, of cancer and there was a real movement for women to not take hormones like and so i think this is why a lot of people were uh avoidant and and i guess the question comes down to it is you know is the how do you determine the risk benefit ratio you know like I I think maybe actually before I even get there like what are the clear downsides of having untreated perimenopause
1: okay so as I was writing in my substack this week and I've written about hormone replacement therapy and menopause many times on my substack The trajectory of a woman's menopause, predicting it, the trajectory is like playing the slots in Las Vegas or, you know, it's just, it's, it is so variable. In other words, I have women come into my office and I will say, you know, for their annual checkup and I'll say, okay, you know, there may be 52 and I'll say, when was your last menstrual cycle? And some of them will say, oh, I think it was about a year ago. I hadn't really paid attention. And I say, do you have any hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse? No, they have no symptoms. They didn't even notice. So that's, that's one extreme example of being through menopause and not having symptoms. I'd say, that, I'd say that's unusual. The other example on the other side of the coin is someone who is approaching menopause. They're, say, 47, 48, 49. They're skipping periods. Maybe they went three months without one. Maybe they went five months, maybe six. And they're experiencing debilitating hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, you know all the things I just talked about, such that it's affecting their mental health their their relationship with their partner um it's affecting their sleep and their mood, and then you know we all know that when we don't feel like ourselves, we turn to you know that's when we turn that's when we turn to you know things to prop us up like caffeine during the day and then wine at night and that just revs the engine of the the hormonal insufficiency. My point is this, the symptoms of the absence of hormones or the the declining levels of hormones, the symptoms are so variable person to person that you cannot generalize about what what the harms are. But I'll just say in general, being postmenopausal, not having estrogen, progesterone, and small amounts of testosterone over the long time does put people in general at higher risk for osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline, uh, pelvic floor laxity. In other words, our pelvic floor, right, is a set of organs. It's our bladder, it's our uterus, and it's all the supporting structures around there. Estrogen is an important hormone that helps maintain that structural integrity such that over time, with age, of course, with gravity, with having had children, women can notice without estrogen an increased risk for pelvic floor dysfunction or laxity that can cause pain, everything from hip pain to low back pain to urinary incontinence. So let's put it this way, Quadro. When I have a patient who has pretty significant menopausal symptoms and is low risk for the downsides, which we'll talk about, have a very low threshold for recommending hormone replacement therapy, obviously with the woman being in charge of their decision and with, you know, eyes wide open to the potential harms. Again, my goal as a doctor like yours is, is not to be absolutist, not to shame or blame or or tell people what I would do if I were them is to give people information and, and data to then weigh the balance, uh, weigh the harms and the benefits um, for them because as you know, like one of my favorite expressions is, is this, there are no solutions in life. There are only trade-offs, right? So, so there, there are like, you know, we learned this in COVID, right? There are harms of the virus for children. There also are harms of the mitigations. Mm. It's not about do this or do that. It's about where do we find that balance? Same thing for hormone replacement therapy. It's not about yes, take hormones or no take hormones It's about let's talk about you and what you stand to benefit and what's your unique risk and then try
0: to mitigate those risks. That's 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 perfectly put, Lucy, like just, you know, basically we're saying like it's an individual. You got to individualize it. So maybe we can um, before talking about what HRT looks like for folks, what are some of the risks and uh, and like, and, and if possible, quantify them uh, if they're significant or 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 insignificant. But what are some of the risks that come to mind when if someone if you're considering them going on HRT?
1: Okay, so so let's start with the basics. So the Women's Health Initiative study came out in 2002, and the headlines screamed about about the time that came out. I and mean, the headlines were pretty pretty, pretty strong. And, and, and basically they said, you know, hormone replacement therapy causes breast cancer. I mean, that was sort of the, whether or not the headlines literally said that, that's what the public heard, that hormone replacement therapy causes breast cancer, and that we've been doing harm to women by prescribing hormone replacement therapy. Now, I mean, first of all, the study, while well-intended and well-executed in many ways, was flawed in important ways um, such that it's important to recognize what was not reported and what the takeaway message was. Let me just say this. So, So we've learned over time, and as recently as 2022, there's another major, major study that came out out of the UK showing once again that it's not thought that estrogen causes breast cancer i'll say that again it's not thought that estrogen causes breast cancer can estrogen kind of potentiate a breast cancer in a woman absolutely what's the difference so here's an analogy saying that estrogen causes breast cancer is sort of like saying driving causes car accidents in other words yes like estrogen is part of the puzzle, but it's not a it's it's a correlative factor. The biggest risk factor for getting breast cancer is being a woman, and being a woman is about having estrogen. So, let me say it this way: When someone develops breast cancer, when my patient, for example, last month developed breast cancer and she was on hormones, we automatically take that person off hormones temporarily, perhaps permanently. Because of the risk of estrogen promoting more growth of that tumor. There are, there's a way to, to, to look at these tumors very specifically and find out are these tumors in the breast sensitive to estrogen? Do they have receptors on their surface that makes estrogen, you know, like watering, watering the tumor with estrogen? And if the answer is yes, you have an estrogen receptor positive tumor, of course we take estrogen away from that person. But that is not the same thing as the estrogen has caused the breast cancer. Hmm. Does that make sense? Did I explain that? Okay.
0: Absolutely. And I I think if I'm not mistaken, too, like, you know, when it came to these studies, uh, like the WHI, like these weren't necessarily people that were typically you'd be offering treatment to. My understanding, they were older, they were had more comorbidities. So, you know, when you would think about hormone replacement at a earlier age than someone that are in their 60s. So I, yeah, to the application necessarily wasn't lining up, was my understanding.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, you're you're exactly right, Kodra. They they, you know, the headlines screamed that, you know, hormones increase the risk for breast cancer. But what what actually happened is when you when you look at the data with the fine-tooth comb. You know, the women in the WHI who took estrogen alone and not in combination with synthetic progesterone, which, by the way, we don't really use anymore, Mm. um, actually had a decreased risk for breast cancer. And that was left out of much of the reporting. Mm. And so, you know, as a result of these kind of fear-based headlines two decades ago, you know, women around the world, you know, took away their hormone replacement therapy, were hot flashing and sweating and having difficulty with sex life and all the above. And then now, you know, fast forward to 2023, there's so much accumulated data that's, that's fresh and 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 actually corroborates what the, the, the real findings were of the Women's Health Initiative, which is that in general, hormone replacement therapy is considered safe for most women if it is initiated within 10 years of the last menstrual period. So within 10 years of... Or sorry, within ten years of menopause, I should say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this is not to say that it's a panacea, nor is it to say that everyone on this call should go out and start taking hormones. It's to say that we should we should give women sort of the the, the access to the information and tools they need to be healthy. And for some people, that does include hormone replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. The other potential downsides of hormone replacement therapy are that you know the old the old um, Uh, the old delivery system of hormone replacement therapy. The original was like PremPro. PremPro was like the OG hormone replacement therapy. And that was synthetic progesterone um, and it was higher dose of estrogen. And it, uh, it carried a higher risk for blood clots. So that's another concern women often have. Like, what about blood clots? Well, if you don't take estrogen by mouth, if you take it through a ring that is absorbed systemically or you take it by a patch, that Takes away that added risk for for blood clots, so that because it's not processed through the liver, so mm. that's an easy fix. At the same time, if someone is is quite high risk for blood clots, like they're a smoker, they've had blood clots before, they have a genetic predisposition to clotting, you know, it's something we would consider just like we would with any other uh, treatment modality. Mm. Um, people often ask me, "What about weight gain? Am I going to gain weight?" Gain weight, and I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart, uh, Quadro, because you're all about metabolic health. Estrogen doesn't cause weight loss. However, the absence of estrogen, the lowering amounts of estrogen in our bodies as we age as women, um, promotes that central adiposity, that weight accumulation in our middles. You know, I see women all the time who are like, "Oh my gosh!" Like over the last year, you know, I always gained weight in my thighs, but now I'm gaining weight in my middle, and that that's often promoted by Um, the absence of estrogen. So estrogen therapy, when you give people back the estrogen that they're no longer making, can help that redistribution of weight. But let's acknowledge that it's always easier to gain weight than it is to lose weight, that fat around our middles is because of lots of things from, you know, carbohydrates and age and, you know, just body type. Mm -hmm. And so once again, there's no like silver bullet to manage all the things that people experience with age and postmenopause, but, but again, hormones should be in the arsenal of tools we offer to people along with the nuanced advice about it.
0: Yeah. And, and just reading the comments in the, in, in some of this too, like a lot of, a lot of the information that you're providing, like, yeah. you know, in terms of the new evidence supporting or even the new guidelines, I know like even in, in Canada yeah. supporting the, the, the uh, hormone replacement therapy can be safe and effective. Uh, a lot of practitioners aren't up to speed and uncomfortable prescribing and so i think yeah. this is why I, you know the education piece needs to be bolstered
1: yeah i think what you're seeing there and and is that you know i think that public narratives that are centered on fear are really hard to undo so yeah. when you have a world uh, sorry a women's health initiative study that comes out in 2002 headlines say Breast cancer is increased with hormone replacement therapy. You know, that trickles into people's psyches. It trickles into people's decision making, including for doctors. And we also have to acknowledge that we live in a, 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 a cultural landscape where doctors are increasingly risk intolerant. That's not to say they are, you know, doing, you know, that they're, there's, that's not to say they're not well intended. I'm just saying that it, it's much easier to tell a patient, "No, I don't think it's a good idea. It can increase your risk for whatever." Than it is to offer a conversation and to have to know the data. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not to be disparaging of people who don't entertain it. Is to say that we really need to work on a more structural level to destigmatize hormones, even in the medical community. Um, you know, no one wants like. I have to deliver bad news to people all day, right? Or not all day. You have to deliver more bad news to people all day. I have to deliver bad news to people all the time, like. And actually, that's it. If people understand me, they understand what I mean when I say that is one of the most. That's one of the great honors of my of my life is to sit with someone who has a difficult diagnosis and to kind of map out a program or treatment. I take no pleasure in telling a woman she has breast cancer. I also know, based on the data, including this enormous study in the UK that just came out of over 40,000 women with breast cancer comparing women who took hormones with women who didn't, that estrogen alone doesn't have an increased risk for developing breast cancer, that that person didn't develop breast cancer because of estrogen, yet we will take it away transiently during treatment or for ha- perhaps forever. Mm. What I'm saying is, Our job, my job, is to prevent disease. It's also to enhance quality of life. We cannot prevent death. We can expand life, and that includes quality of life. And the problem with the dialogue in a lot of doctor's offices, and I understand why this is, is that we aren't counting quality of life measures. We aren't counting, Mm. you know, sleeplessness, sex life, sense of well-being, you know, the ability to not have urinary tract infections. We don't count those sort of harder to quantify yet. Lo- no less important measures of someone's life in the decision-making rubric on medications like yeah, hormones.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, and like to put it in perspective, like, you know, one of the drivers for me was understanding how many, how many perimenopausal menopausal women retire early, have m- m- mental, like that prescribed, uh, you know uh a uh, psychiatric medication because of antidepressants and so forth like how dramatic it can affect that quality of life and to me my always my framework when it comes to these decisions is it's', it's shared decision making like you 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 say this is a cost this is a benefit based on your values and what's important to you this would be my recommendation but it's up to you. Like in in that sense, it's like, if we're going to go on a treatment such as this, it's up to you. Like the ball's in your court, but this is my recommendation based on the conversation we have. And that's a shared decision. And so that that's a shared risk. You know what I mean? And, and I think most clinic or uh, most patients can really absorb that. They appreciate that because to do that, you have to listen and, and, and um, have a sense of what's important to them. But if you're right. if you're in in the in some ways the prime of your life where you know your kids might be out of the house you know you're valued at work because of your level of expertise uh, and you can't be you can't do all the things that you love. I mean, that's like that has to be factored into the equation, frankly.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah, it does. Someone's pointing out an excellent an excellent point is that the North American Menopause Society put out their Position statement on menopausal hormone therapy. So it used to be called HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Now it's called menopause replacement menopause.
0: You're the first one I heard to do that, so I haven't I haven't put it in my lexicon yet. We haven't got into the you're, yeah,
1: it's 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 menopause. Uh, what what the heck am I? Saying? It's it's menopausal hormone therapy. Yes,
0: oh, sorry, M-H-T. So, M-H-T. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. I'm like uh, so. Um, So NAMS put out this position statement in 2022, and it is a beautiful piece of literature that I encourage all patients, all people to miniaturize, laminate, put it in your pocket and bring it to your OBGYN because, you know, let's face it, doctors have a lot of things we need to know. Like we need to know everything about, I mean, especially like internists, we need to know about diabetes and dementia and menopause and depression and, and- it's, it's hard to keep up with all the data on all this stuff. I mean, one of, if I may, one of my strengths is knowing what I don't know. And I outsource that. Like if I don't, you know, I, I'm like, not that, I'm, like, for example, I'm not great with osteoporosis. Like I just, I, I can do the, I can talk about the medicines like it, but I just probably a uh, forte, all these different medicines. I end up just referring to rheumatologists, but like mental health is like something I, I do a lot myself with, but I, but then I refer to psychiatrists as needed. My point being that, this NAM's position statement, the North American Menopause Society Statement from 2022, is a nice summary of the current evidence and the current ways of balancing risks, risks of menopause versus against the risks of the therapy. So um, I wish I could put it in a chat, but there is no chat on um, there is no chat on Yeah, we'll, uh, put, we'll put a
0: link to it in the show notes.
1: Put the link in the show notes.
0: You, know and you could
1: also link to the nice new study that um, came out in 22 quarter out of the UK, the one with the 40,000, the 40. The, the 40 the, yeah, exactly. And yeah. I can put that, you can put that, I'll send it to you. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so it's interesting. If, if I think about, if I think about my average 70 or 80 year old patient, you know, someone who's like generally healthy, you know, no sort of life threatening illnesses you know, one of the the set of a set of, a set of common complaints they have are, in terms of their sort of infrastructure, like their their skeletal health. I have to say, like so much of it comes down to that pelvic floor stability. I think, to be honest, I think we should really have women after childbirth certainly call their attention to the fact that unless you strengthen up those pelvic floor muscles postpartum, they get weak, they get tired. And then that can, and the pelvic floor is like ground zero for our kind of our core, which then informs our hips that informs our back. So my point is, I see a lot of women who are in their 70s and 80s who weren't given that information, who had weak, who have weak pelvic floor muscles because they didn't know to strengthen them. And then you have the absence of estrogen for 30, 40 years, and they get urinary tract infections. They have pain. They can no longer be sexually active. Someone asked me two weeks ago, a patient of mine in her 70s, she said, well, I thought that women in their 70s couldn't have sex. And I said, you can. It's just that I mean, what I what I, I wasn't her doctor in her fifties, but had she been on hormone replacement therapy, she might have had an easier time. Hmm. Obviously, sex drive is informed by a lot of things, from our partner to you know kids in the running around in the hall, right? Like, there's it's not just about estrogen and it's not just about pelvic floor, but I'm just saying that that that's a common set of complaints from women in their seventies or eighties that could be ameliorated with attention to the structural integrity of the pelvic floor and that is improved often by estrogen
0: yeah you know and and maybe we could talk about um sorry jessica i see your question about pcos we'll hit it up but maybe the first question uh, um i think we should address is like what are the forms of H, of of hormone replacement like are you you know you hear about patches you hear about gels you hear about pills you hear about progesterone like what is kind of the logic and the framework
1: okay let's to think about that to, uh,
0: let me the, let and, me... and one other thing before you say that yeah. we, we did get a pelvic floor specialist on the show uh, uh mrs forge and uh You'll hear that episode too, folks. But it, it, what Lucy was throwing down, it, like I started to do my, my Kegels. Like I'm doing Kegels right now, folks.
1: Oh my God, real. that is so awesome. Kegels on Instagram live. There's just nothing better. Mm. <laughs> that was a, I mean, they even, uh, if you want to go deep on the pelvic floor here, there are these, these uh, people laugh at me when I say this, my patients do. And I'm like, look, you'll thank me. They, they ha- they're they the set of vaginal weights you can buy on Amazon or whatever. Basically, it's a set of weights. It's like, you know, you go to the gym to like work on your bicep. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
1: a set of weights that you gradually work up to, strengthening your pelvic floor muscles. I love the physical therapist who just got on here and said that PT is, should be, you know, standard of care for people postpartum. But if you want to do it on yourself, DIY pelvic floor therapy, order these weights, vaginal weights, to help strengthen up your pelvic floor really will do you, do you good. And if you had estrogen too, that could even be better, but PCOS really quickly just let's hit that. Absolutely. I mean, there's no reason someone who who has PCOS couldn't, well, there's no common reason that I can think of for people who have PCOS not to be on hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not, it's not a contraindication. Now PCOS people can kind of uh, the, the symptoms of PCOS can often abate as people get closer to menopause and so it sometimes becomes moot but that's a nuanced conversation to discuss with your endocrinologist or, or your gynecologist but it's not a it's not a no. So what are the formulations of estrogen? Okay it's important to understand that when you're thinking about treating menopausal symptoms whatever they may be with menopause hormone therapy the first question you want to ask and hopefully you know the answer is do you have a uterus? If you don't know the answer, I think that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, some of my 90 year old patients, they don't know they had, they had, they had some surgery, the pelvic surgery. They don't know. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like how disenfranchised women were back in, you know, the 1940s. Um, Okay. So back to the point, if you have a uterus, you have to take progesterone and estrogen. You can't take estrogen alone. So estrogen is the sort of main hormone you want to be on if you are thinking about hormone replacement therapy. That is what hormone replacement therapy is. It's estrogen. If you have a uterus, you must pair the estrogen with progesterone because if you take estrogen alone and you have a uterus, you, that puts you at higher risk for uterine cancer. Basically, the, the estrogen alone can stimulate the lining of the uterus and develop tumors. That risk is offset, not 100%, but offset by taking progesterone. So, what are the ways in which you can take estrogen and progesterone? Well, you can take estrogen and progesterone separately. You can have estrogen in a ring, a vaginal ring that's inserted in, at, intra, intravaginally every 90 days. It's painless. Partner doesn't feel it. It's very easy. Um, you can take estrogen in the form of a tablet. That's the original kind of hormone replacement therapy that people don't often do because of the risk for blood clots. You can take estrogen in the form of a patch where you put it on your tummy every three days and you have to just change it out. People don't like that sometimes because of the adhesives. They're allergic. They want to wear a bathing suit. People are like, oh, I see you're on hormones. This is a personal choice. You can also be on estrogen gel that's less potent, but let's say you're on an estrogen ring or an estrogen patch for your estrogen. Then you get progesterone either by mouth, an oral progesterone tablet every day, or you can take an estrogen, a progesterone in a, in a patch. And there's a combination patch. So it's called combi patch, which is estrogen and progesterone together in a patch every three days. You can take estrogen in the form of a patch and then get your progesterone with an IUD. IUDs, remember, are progesterone-emitting devices in the uterus that count as hormone replacement therapy, the progesterone arm. In other words, there are, there's a lot of choice here. The, the, one of the major downsides of hormone replacement therapy is cost. Quadra, you can get Viagra. You can go to the store right now and get Viagra for probably like 50 cents. We don't need to talk about you and Viagra unless you wanted to. But we, 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 hormone replacement therapy is extremely expensive for a lot of people. It's, it's, a, crime, it's a shame. It's just it's just not the access to it is is not good. So my point is you would talk to your gynecologist or your internist or your menopause specialist which are which do exist to discuss um what formulation you wanted to 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 to, to take if you indeed wanted to take it at all.
0: Yeah, no that's great and and I think one of my takeaways Lucy to be clear is um, the main, when it comes to the risk of sp- specifically clots, as you mentioned earlier, if you're taking estrogen via mouth, that is a higher risk because it you yes. it, it gets first passed through the liver and, right. uh, the other formulations will avoid that. So that's, that's how you mitigate that clot risk.
1: Yep. Beautiful. Exactly.
0: Excellent. And so then you hear all this talk, I, the, about bio identical and 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 all this stuff when it comes to hormones, can you walk me through that? Like, yeah, yeah. To better understand what everyone's talking so, about.
1: So, by the way, I should say this up front, or I should should have said this up front. Like, my friend Sharon Malone, my friend um, uh, Amanda Williams, like my friend Kelly Casperson, Rachel Rubin. These are all incredibly talented women in the field of. You know, gynecology, urogynecology, GYN. Who, who, who? I, I welcome your opinion because some of them I think are joining here. Um, but so if I to say that bioidentical is somewhat of a marketing term, in other words, micronized progesterone, progestin, which is what I prescribe to patients who need the progesterone arm of hormone replacement therapy, is bioidentical. It is, it is. Bioidentical is a bit of a, is a bit of a marketing word, if I may. I, I because does that make sense? Like, there's no there's nothing more natural than just getting than getting some than getting micronized progestin. That's as close as you get,
0: hmm.
1: and that's what we prescribe from CVS, Walgreens, and as much as I don't love you know big pharmaceutical or uh, pharmacy chains, like that's what they provide. And so, the, 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 I don't think you need to look further. And the progesterone is cheap. It's the estrogen that's more expensive.
0: And there's a question by, by Tammy, I think on um, progestin versus progesterone.
1: Yeah, it's micronized progesterone and progestin that I'm talking about, which is what I prescribe for, for female patients, the bioidentical, micronized. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, so I'm going I'm to hit you up with some uh, some like a rapid fire, if that's okay. Because there's yeah. a lot of a lot of good questions here. Is there? T- do you need blood work before starting someone on on hormone replacement therapy?
1: It's a great question. You don't have to have blood work. It can be useful to. So here, here. So what? What? what we're, I'll, I'll try to be quick. There are two kind of me, basic hormone tests. That you look at when you're trying to figure out if you're trying to answer the question, am I post menopause? Is the absence of hormone? Uh, is the absence of periods for menstrual periods for 12 months? Is this menopause or is this my thyroid or is this emotional distress? In that setting, checking hormones can be very useful. If you have a high FSH and a low estradiol, the estrogen, then that tells you pretty, pretty with pretty good certainty that you're post menopause. But checking hormones doesn't actually do that much. What we do is we treat the patient. Treating the hormone number doesn't make much of a difference because the definition of menopause is that you don't have estrogen and we can see that on lab work and that you have a high FSH. Mm. Does that make sense? Like yeah. the reason to get the labs is to question are am I is, is my absent period menopause or is it because of, you know, I'm going through something emotionally stressful or Maybe I have some other diagnosis. Hmm.
0: And and here's a question from Kavita: Is there a target estradiol level to get that bone protection?
1: No, it's really it's we don't use level. We we treat the patient, not the level. And and we really let symptoms be the guide. Now you can't use bone fractures as a, as a way of guiding you. Right, you have to use people's physical symptoms to know you know, if we're, if we're treating the person appropriately, if you're simply using estrogen and progesterone and you're using it for osteoporosis prevention and not because of symptoms of hot flashes and night sweats and dryness, um, we just use a standard dose, you know, which is, Mm -hmm. which happens to be lower than like the, the birth control pill doses. Um, But there's no sort of, there's no sort of like goal estrogen. Now, there may be people on here. There, Rachel Rubin, my my trusted hormone replacement therapy guru, who's a doctor, might disagree. She might say, oh, you know, I have found that an estradiol of 50 is better than 40 for, I just, I don't actually know the data on osteoporosis and estrogen levels. I am going to guess that that data isn't, aren't there, but, but I could be wrong. Hmm.
0: Okay. Um, couple good questions here uh when it comes to risk of taking hr2 if you have auto any autoimmune disorder is there any concerns about that
1: i mean that, that is so that is that's hard to answer because autoimmunity is such a broad category of issues i would say i wouldn't rule it out i would talk to your rheumatologist and your gynecologist in concert that's where you know we, we get two heads together, but like, for example, if you had an autoimmune condition that promoted clotting, that would be a different calculation than if you had an autoimmune condition like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which wouldn't carry any added risk with breast cancer. You might have to adjust your Synthroid dose on the hormones, but that, but so it's very dependent. Autoimmunity is so broad and vast. Yeah. And,
0: that's a fair, that's a fair point. Yeah, I think yeah. when, when, if i saw the same person ask the question, I think they'll, there was a, a thyroid reference. So, and we've had a couple of thyroid questions. I saw it on Twitter about, yeah, you know, if there's special consideration. So, uh, you know, as as you answered it, not obviously, but um, no, I obviously mean, good to I, check.
1: I mean, hypothyroidism is extremely common in the general population. And I think in many cases we sort of over medicalize normal sometimes, but you know, hypothyroidism is extremely common. I have many patients with Hashimoto's who are on Synthroid and and we often find that around perimenopause and menopause, the TSH and the T4 and the T3, those, those thyroid hormone uh, levels in the blood will, will shift a little bit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, the requirement for the synthroid dose will, will change subtly. And then sometimes when we put people on hormone replacement therapy, the, the dosing requirement will change. But it's, it's, it's not complicated or rocket science to, 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 to figure that out. And it's, and having Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism is certainly not a contraindication to considering hormone replacement therapy. But they're both hormonal axes, right? Like the thyroid hormone axis and the female reproductive hormone axis, they do talk to each other. Word. Word.
0: Word. Um, uh, this one might be a tough question. Um, let me know if you think this is too tough the role of HRT in the postpartum period especially for breastfeeding women who are symptomatic and have many and have many of the perimenopausal symptoms
1: it's a good question so it's interesting a yeah, postpartum women can have symptoms that are that mimic perimenopause hmm. I mean, if you have a baby in your in your 50s and you in your 49 or something, maybe it is menopause, but 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 for for women who are like say 30s or and, and, and then have like this the, the hot flashes, the night sweats, and the vaginal dryness that accompany postpartum period, that's not menopause, that's just a shifting hormonal balance. So we wouldn't use hormone replacement therapy in, in the forms I described, like the rings and the you would you would you would consider treating, for example, vaginal dryness topically. You might consider getting on the birth control pill because when you're premenopausal, the birth control pill offers you know a regular dose of estrogen and progesterone every single day instead of letting your body kind of go wacko postpartum. Wacko wow. being a medical term, of course.
0: Ultra wacko. No, I, I, I fill <laughs> you. Um, another question. Uh, you hear some talk amongst uh, medical experts about. Uh, the application of testosterone what would be the indications there
1: so testosterone I think I I think some people don't know this that that the ovaries their main job is making estrogen progesterone estrogen and progesterone they also make testosterone so women have testosterone levels and and just like menopause is defined as dwindling levels of estrogen and progesterone so too does the testosterone level drop as well so when we're talking about hormone replacement therapy we're talking about estrogen and progesterone replacement we can also add a little dab of testosterone if needed what does testosterone do for women well let's first talk about what the absence of testosterone can do the absence of testosterone can be in part responsible for a lowering of libido the absence of testosterone in women they used to have can in part be responsible for a changing of our um, we're fat distribution, weight distribution. So sometimes adding testosterone to the hormonal mix will help with that central adiposity, that weight distribution in our middles, and also with libido. But again those things are informed by so many other things. It's not just the absence of testosterone and testosterone is not a panacea, but it's something to think about. Hmm. And that could be a gel. It can be a cream. There are lots of formulations.
0: Oh, That's great, Lucy. I think um, maybe the last thing we'll, we'll touch on is alternatives to h- hormone replacement therapy. Like what people can be doing to mitigate some of the risk of whether it's heart flashes, whether it's a risk of osteoporosis, um, what are some of the the ways that people can mitigate some of that?
1: So it's a great question because lots of people don't take hormones. They don't, they don't need it or they're high risk. For example, patients who have the BRCA gene, the breast cancer gene, the one that can inform risk for breast cancer and ovarian cancer are naturally often disinclined to taking hormones. So yeah. So hot flashes and night sweats, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, mixed data, but what, what I see anecdotally and what is, what is borne out in the literature is that people generally feel better when they cut back on alcohol and sugar. Hmm. They, when, when Alcohol and sugar tend to rev the engine of that sort of temperature instability in our, in our skin. Some people find that they benefit, they have less hot flashes and night sweats when they take medicines like gabapentin or Effexor. Effexor is a serotonin or epinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Um, Those are prescription medications. Um, Some people find benefit from something called black cohosh or vitamin E, um, which are just over-the-counter natural supplements. Um, Osteoporosis, of course, is informed by how much calcium and vitamin D we have in our diet and through the sun. So, To prevent osteoporosis, it's not just about hormones. It's about those vitamins. And then it's about weight bearing exercise. So the more we get resistance training, which Quadro is a pro at and an advocate for, yeah. I mean, look at that. So you are not going to have osteoporosis in that right arm. My friend, I can tell you right now, (laughs) (laughs) your right arm is good. You're right. You're all good. Like if you break Mm -hmm. your right arm, it's not because you have osteoporosis. Um, So (laughs) noted. (laughs) So so, so that's what we do to prevent osteoporosis. And then hormones are another added bonus um and uh in the mix. But so that's that that's my little spiel.
0: No, that and that's good. It's it's good. I mean, like you said, like for, for a lot of people, that could be enough, or if there's significant contra, contraindications for HRT. Like this is something that people will want to hear and, and stuff that they could work on now, like uh, reducing their stress too, making sure they sleep, like all yes. these little things Thank you. That they, they add up. So I, 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 I think that's great. Lucy, listen, I gotta give you mad props. You, this was, you were on the hot seat today. We had the technical issues, you had the echoing, and then you just yeah. nailed these questions. Like there ain't no thing. Like I gotta say, like uh, you're a pro and I, I know,
1: I mean, it is my job so like it would, but but yes but thank you thank you thank you i'll, I'll no. take any compliments
0: uh, yeah yeah and then the other like other part of this is you know like we we are in the business of empowering folks like they're really giving them a uh a, an avenue to be able to advocate for themselves some agency to say hey you know agency
1: amen like, hey
0: ooh, uh, you know i'm going through these symptoms there's there's evidence there's guidelines that support treating me if if that's in my best interest. So this is kind of our way of 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 empowering you folks and giving giving that agency and and I hope it was uh, I know it was helpful. I I know truly it was helpful. And so I want to thank you Lucy once again for agreeing to do this. Uh, you got to actually before we we jump off where can people get a hold of your shit?
1: Oh You can find me on Substack. Go to lucymcbride.substack.com. That's where you can find my weekly newsletter, which is uh, every week free. It's about, I talk about mental health, physical health, sort of, you know, I talk about redefining health as more than the absence of disease, right? We are the integrated sum of different components. We are not just our lab tests. We are not just a bag of organs, right? We have stories, we have mental health, We have, and we need to be empowered to have the information and tools we need to live healthfully. You know, health is not just about your checkup annually, right? It's also not about being in the ICU with Dr. K. It's about that enormous gray area. When you're out there in the world, 364 days a year, you're not in the doctor's office, making choices, making decisions, weighing risks and benefits from, you know, decisions on, you know, relationships to substances to medications to you know whatever what your you know health is in the everyday it's in the mundane even. And so what I love about what you're doing Quadro is you're really helping sort of demedicalize the human condition. You know, we tend to medicalize so much of health when so many so many things that people suffer from Uh, are rooted in things we actually have more control over than we think. Mm. You know, we can't control death. We can't control other people. We can't control our sort of destiny in every single way, right? In fact, trying to control the uncontrollable is where people get anxious and distressed. But when you focus on lifestyle and habits and sort of self-care, prioritizing sleep, exercise, movement, strong relationships thinking about mental health like you do your physical health, thinking about it just like any other organ system. I mean, really, that's when we start cracking the code, and that's when people start feeling healthy from the inside out. They have nice cholesterol levels, but that's not what health is. Health is about having cholesterol levels and being able to pick up your grandkids when you're 80, being able to, you know you know, ha, be in an intimate relationship when you're 80. It's about having choices and tools and um, information along the way that's rooted in data and rooted in your, an understanding of your own your own goals and your own North Star.
0: Amen, Lucy. And like uh, you are tremendously on point. This is why I, you, you're going to love her, her sub stack, lucymcbride.substack.com. If you want a piece of this, go to uh quadcast.substack.com and we'll send you not only the podcast, the video of the this podcast, and also uh the show notes with the links to the study. Lucy, you are a gem. Thank you so much. Oh my for god, Quadro, you
1: are a gem. Thank you for inviting me, and I'll see you next time. Amen. Thank
0: you. Yo tell me that wasn't juicy. Qualcast Nation, tell me that wasn't fresh. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, at Qualcast. Leave any comments at Qualcast99 at gmail.com. Give us that five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast. And more importantly, spread the love, yo, man. Spread the love. Send this episode to somebody that you think it would benefit. Let us know what you think. That's how we make a difference. Spread the word and for sure, join our newsletter, join our self-in Healthcare Media membership. Go to quadcast.substack.com where we're changing the boogie. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll connect again real soon. Peace.